Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 34. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, and with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to the other, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed many who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, 
so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Lord, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that evil winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going to the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Good afternoon, fam. How are we doing? Doing good? I uh, pastor here. One of my uh, areas of oversight is uh, that I get to oversee our worship music. And one of the things we delight in is our youth choir that we have play a few times a year. And if you're interested, if you have a kid that's uh, five and older up that you'd like to get involved with that, in two weeks we have our first rehearsal for the holidays. We're going to have one of the Sundays in December uh, where they, they lead us in a couple songs of worship. Um, so if you're interested, you can contact Nicole Henderson. Nicole, are you here today? She might be down at Promise Kingdom. Uh, but uh, you can come out. That's in two weeks on November the 25th at 2 p.m. And have a day five and up. We pray for our, our, uh, our word today before we start. Well, Father, we pray you would send your spirit to do miraculous things through your son, Jesus Christ, in this world. And we pray you would do miraculous things in our hearts, even as we hear about it, and we come closer to knowing Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Our world is a world of exclusivity. Our whole economy is based off of the principle that a certain select few get a certain privilege that nobody else can get. We have things like the pretentious curtain between the economy section and the first class section on the plane. And suddenly that little curtain, just a little bit more legroom, makes the prices go sky high. And we have things like, like Harvard and Cornell and Princeton that bring this level of prestige to a level that maybe makes us think, do you really have the right to ask what you're asking from us? I've looked up Harvard's um, admission statistics, and there was 5.2% of the people that applied to Harvard actually made it in. And $70,000 a year is what they require for tuition. I look at those numbers, and I think, who even wants in on that? I mean, not me. I went to Westchester because it was cheap. 
There are also those, also those super elitist clubs, right? Fraternities and sororities that paved the way for a career. There's hazings. There's crazy feats of, of embarrassing nature. There's people suffering denial after denial after denial to finally get in the club. And I read there was this one fraternity that took a glowing hot um, iron with the, their symbol. They stuck it in the fire and they held it up before the person that wanted to join. They put a blindfold on them, then took another brand just like it, plunged it in ice cold water and stuck it on his skin. Just to prove that he really, really was committed. And I'm like, is, that, is it really worth it? Do I really want to suffer the social trauma to be involved in this group? Does it really offer something that validates the sacrifice that's involved? Well, today's sermon is going to have us asking the same questions about Jesus Christ. Does he have the right to ask what he asks of us? And I pray that it will leave us with a decisive answer. Because today we're going to get a glimpse of who Jesus is, who he really is, and what he calls us to as disciples. So he just finished his masterful sermon on the mount. And all those who are around him have been learning about what it looks like to be a follower in his kingdom. And they're totally astonished. Astonished because the standards he just laid out, no one could ever possibly keep. You'd have to be perfect. They're intrigued, though, as well. They're not just put off by his standards because he's pushing against the oral tradition of the day. He's pushing back against the teachers that he's saying are incorrectly interpreting the law. This is a new teaching with authority and power. So they're wondering, who is this teacher with the high standards? And maybe you're in the same place. You've been coming to church. You, just recently joined Risen Hope. And you've been listening. You're kind of like somebody that's in this crowd, but you're towards the edge. Close enough to hear the words of Jesus, but you don't want to be noticed. Jesus has a word for you today. Maybe you're here and you think, I'm not in this story. I'm not in any of these stories unless Jesus is talking about hell. Because I know I'm bad. Jesus has a word for you today. Maybe you recommitted your life to Jesus last week. He said, I've, I've been wandering. It was decision time last week. I came forward for prayer. Jesus has a word for you today. Jesus has a word for all of us today. And he makes some crazy claims in this text. Far beyond the demands and the prestige that places like Harvard promise and require, Jesus promises surpassing power and demands even more dedication. He tells us what it looks like to be a true disciple. And we're going to investigate that, the identity of a true disciple, by looking at who Jesus heals, what he requires, and who Jesus is. So let's first look at verses 1 through 17. We'll see three miraculous healings. We need to investigate who is it that Jesus heals. We see the leper. We see the centurion's servant, and we see the mother-in-law of Peter. And at first glance, when we first read this, when Emil read this for us, you probably thought the stories are mostly about Jesus having the authority and the power to heal our brokenness. And that's certainly true. It is about that. 
But there's something even more emphatic in these accounts. You see, Luke and Mark recount some of the same stories, but they put the emphasis on the faith of the person and the compassion of Jesus in response. But Matthew particularly puts the emphasis on the type of people that Jesus is going after to heal. A leper, a centurion servant, and a mother-in-law of Peter. And even though the leper is later in Mark's account, Matthew moves it to the front. Why? To highlight the most scandalously lowly and inferior of the three. The leper was stuck in an incurable disease. The term leprosy, when you see it in the Bible, it means a bunch of different skin diseases. And we, when we think of skin diseases, we think of something, some scabbing and itching and pain, right? The physical suffering that goes with something like that. But in Jesus' day, actually the worst part about having leprosy, any kind of skin disease, was that it was permanent and incurable. The term leprosy is only used for the incurable and permanent diseases. You see, in Leviticus 13, we hear that you have to be clean. You have to be ritually clean to be a part of the people of God and live amongst the people. And because of that, this chapter in Leviticus 13 tells us the lepers had to live in a totally different community. They weren't allowed to live on the same street as anybody else. They were destined Fading, stuck in a socially outcast situation. So this leper was alone. This leper was hopeless. This leper was forever a social outcast. And yet, what do we see? We see Jesus reaching towards him, eager and able to heal him. And he actually touches him. You've got to imagine this scene in your head. Try to bring yourself there. There's a big crowd humming around Jesus. And all of a sudden, this leper comes out of nowhere. The crowd would have been shrinking back from, ah, get away from me. He wasn't supposed to be there. He was supposed to be far away. They would have been cursing at him, angry at him, one touch. And he would have made them unclean. He presses through, though just ignoring the insults. And he falls at the feet of Jesus Christ and he urgently cries out, if you will, you can make me clean. This is his last hope. He's at his end. He's willing to be killed by the crowd. This leper defies all social norms to reach Jesus. And he even defies logic in his exclamation, you can heal me. It's not supposed to happen with leprosy. G.K. Beale writes this. The leper's audacity to mingle with the crowd in search of Jesus, contrary to the prohibition in Leviticus 13.46, is matched by Jesus' willingness to heal him with a touch. The leper doesn't question Jesus' power to heal him. But his self-loathing was so great that he did question if Jesus truly wanted to. The leper's doubt of Jesus' willingness makes a lot of sense. He wasn't supposed to be there. He knew his state. But his urgent need of healing and his eyes seeing power in Jesus made him cold. And Jesus responds to his faith with healing power. 
And if you were to read this in the original Greek text, it's very emphasized that Jesus touched him. It's moved to the front. The reason is because no leader would touch an unclean person. No normal Jewish person would want to be unclean, let alone the religious elite. But Jesus goes for the weak. He touches his flesh. Jesus goes for the outcast. Jesus goes for the unclear. We can imagine the crowd gasping, oh, when he touches him. Jesus goes after the lowly. So who does Jesus heal? Jesus heals the lowly. And we want, we need to see and feel the inviting and healing love of Jesus for us in this story. So I wonder if anyone here feels unclean. You feel unworthy. You feel beyond Jesus' reach today. You feel like the things you've done, the sins you've touched, the places you've been, make you beyond anyone wanting to help you. Like the leopard, you, you think Jesus could save you, but he wouldn't want someone like you. We need to feel that Jesus does. Jesus goes after that very person in the leper. Then he heals the centurion's servant. And in this, we again see Jesus reaching out for the socially outcast. Now, the centurion's outcast for a different reason. He's got a lot of worldly possessions. He's got men under him. He is fairly prestigious as a, a, a Roman centurion, but he was a Gentile. Not just any Gentile. He was a Roman centurion. He was the man, the oppressor, the unwanted authority. He was unclean. He would be called a dog. And everybody would have agreed and not been like, that's, that's a terrible thing to say. So yeah, that's exactly what he means. Every Jewish person would have hated what he represented. Even though he seemed to be a respectable man, seemed to do a lot of good in the community, seemed to love his servant, he was still a Roman. And as such, his question, him saying, my, my servant's paralyzed in my house, and insinuating that perhaps Jesus can go there, is very presumptuous. It's very offensive. And most scholars actually believe that when Jesus' words are rendered, I will come and heal him, you could actually render it more accurately, will I come and heal him? Because this is super offensive. And the centurion's response underscores this. He knows Jesus shouldn't come to his house as a Jewish man. Yet his faith in Jesus extends beyond these limitations. And he believes that with a word across a great distance, in that very house this man is paralyzed, that he can be healed. And Jesus can. And Jesus does. But our text doesn't just say that he was miraculously and immediately healed. It includes a statement after. Did you catch that? Listen to what Jesus says. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you. Not just the century. Many will come from east and west and recline at table. In this centurion, Jesus sees the inbreaking of the gospel spreading the whole world. In this centurion, he sees a faith that God had planted, that God was planting in those who were formerly called socially outcasts. Does he bring them in just to the outer courts of the temple? 
Does he let them set up shop right outside of, of town? No, he says they will recline at table. The deepest and most intimate of fellowship circles, the, 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 the intimacy of best friendship, this was taboo. Everyone around him would have been like, you said what? R.T. France writes, for the Jewish leader, it was even more taboo than eating with tax collectors and sinners than to enter the home of a Gentile. Imagine inviting him to your table. The centurion had been right to say that Jesus shouldn't come to his house. But Jesus looks him in the eye and says, you, my friend, are invited to my table. And he promises, friends, he promises this to us. Anyone, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of who your daddy is, regardless of what your credit score is, regardless of what your criminal record is, regardless of how many acts of kindness you've done, what charities you've contributed to, what bad things you've done in the past, you are invited by faith and faith alone. That extent, that, 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 that invitation to the centurion is to us. That healing of the leper is the healing of us. He invites the lowly. He heals the outcast. And lastly, we see that Jesus, almost mundanely in this story, goes to Peter's house, notices his mom-in-law is sick, and just decides to heal her. It's like, ain't no thing, I'll just heal you real quick. It's like he helped with the dishes or something, right? And then just to boot, it's like a footnote, and he healed many. And then he's like, and he exercised some demons to boot. This house of, of illness became a house of anointing. Jesus does it effortlessly. Jesus does it with a limitless power. But don't, don't miss whom he heals. You see, at that time, wrongfully, Many believe that women were second-class citizens. In fact, there's a recorded indicting prayer of many Jewish men at the time. They said, thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, slave, or woman. That's horrible. But it reveals that, they, that Peter would have been unconcerned with the state of his mother-in-law. But Jesus is concerned. Jesus goes after the second-class citizen. Jesus goes after the outsider and the lowly. And so the scene begins to change. As the crowd is, is gathering, it's, it's going to a frenzy, Jesus resolves, let's go to the other side of this lake. And suddenly we see two interesting individuals show up who want to come along. And it's in Jesus' response to these folks that, that we see what he requires of his disciples. So who does he heal? The lowly. What does he require? Let's see what he says. So on the heels of these three miracle stories, we find, honestly, some of the most difficult of Jesus' recorded words. First, we hear an eager scribe declaring, I'll follow you wherever you go. I imagine like a little eighth grade boy declaring his love for the eighth grade girl, not knowing anything of what it would require to actually follow her the rest of her life. And Jesus gives him one of those penetrating looks, right? Where he sees through all the pretense and he's like, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm not sure if that guy was confused 
by that, but I was at first. What's he saying? You haven't counted the cost. You haven't thought about what this requires of you. This road I'm on leads to Calvary. This road I'm on isn't filled with comfy ends. It started with no room in the inn at all. It started without feasting and a squalor, and it was going to end up on a bloody cross. It doesn't come with amazing acclaim or celebrity status. It comes with being crucified on a cross and indicted as the worst of criminals. This is a road of suffering. And he demands not just this man, but you and me. He must consider the cost. You're not going to hear many preachers preach this today. They're going to preach to you, everything's going to get better right now as the gospel. They're going to preach to you, just have faith and God will give you that new job. You'll get that promotion. You'll find true love. And guess what? That's probably what this scribe thought. He just saw Jesus do these amazing things, miraculous healings. He's probably thinking, well, I've got to get in on this. It's going to be easy living, right? Easy street. I'm going to have a great life, best life now. And Jesus is like, no, that's not my gospel. He preaches a different gospel. Following me comes at a cost. Have you considered the cost? Jesus is getting in the boat. And we're all called to follow him. Our Lord shoots straight with us even as he does so to this scribe. Following Jesus does come with everlasting pleasure. Incredible blessing. Joy and dignity right now no matter what you're going through. But it also comes with incredible trial. This scribe hadn't counted the cost. Have you? One of the remaining idols of our culture is the American dream. That you are entitled an easy, luxurious life of wealth. And it's reinforced by the fact we live in one of the wealthiest places in the world. Jesus says that is not your right. In fact, he will call many of us to live a life that comes with some poverty to it that comes with persecution, that comes with trial. We need to count the cost when we follow him. Then we see another man. He's called a disciple, maybe a would-be disciple. Come to him and say, Lord, let me go bury my father. We're like, why wouldn't you let him go bury his father? That's horrible. And everybody around him is like, Oh, right? And we're all thinking to ourselves, what is going on here? It's the loss of a loved one, as we just prayed about earlier. It's right to grieve that. It's right to slow down life. What's Jesus saying? This is hard words. Well, commentators have studied this statement a lot. And the cultural practices and the expectations of this time when someone would have passed away, it's, it's very unlikely that this man's father had just died. He wouldn't be on the road. He wouldn't be there. He'd be at the house like he should be. And even the, the, the phrase, bury one's father, 
was used as an idiom for filling out the remainder of your parents' responsibilities when they grew ill or older in their life. So this man isn't asking for just a mere extension of days. This, this is years we're talking about here. But still, you're shocked right now. Folks back then would have been even more so. Your retirement plan was your kids back then. To turn your back on providing for your family, family was to turn your back on the most sacred of bonds, to, to become an absolute scoundrel. But Jesus requires absolute allegiance, complete dedication, and even the deepest of priorities, responsibilities, connections, loves, they must fall at the feet of his command, follow me. If your family shuns you, you must still follow. If you have to leave the world, you must do it to follow. There's no, I'm not in the right season right now. There's no, I'll get serious next month. There's no, I'm hurting too much right now. I'm too messy. There's no, I'm too busy. I'm just trying to get my career in line. Or I have to find the right person to love. Then I'll get serious. Four through sixth graders, youth ministry folks, maybe you're thinking, I'm too young. I'll get serious later. No. Jesus is calling you right Follow me now. Jesus looks at us with those same penetrating eyes that are going to be glowing with fire when he judges the world. And he says, follow me. You will lose friends. Family members may shun you. You may lose your job. You will be less popular. You might go to prison. You may not have a place to lay your head. You may lose your life. Jesus doesn't promise that your life is going to be easy as a disciple. He demands that you follow despite the struggles that will come. And if you refuse to lie for your boss or for your friend at work or school, you will be hated. You may lose your job. If you boldly witness the gospel in dark places, you will suffer. If you stand up for biblical sexual purity in relationships, you will be mocked. You will be scorned. You might even be hated. Because following Jesus comes at a cost. So who is Jesus to ask this of us? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I think Jesus is a jerk. You would be right if I said this or you said this. But who Jesus is is fundamentally different than you and I. And that's our last point. Who is Jesus? Matthew knows we need to get our brains around who Jesus is for us to get our brains around what he's calling us to, the cost. So he gives us two stories, the end of this chapter, that reveal the nature of Christ. So Jesus gets into the boat, and his disciples follow him. And wearied from his travels, Jesus falls asleep. 
But as the boat proceeds along the journey, a storm arises. And not just any storm. This is an incredibly great storm. The Greek uses the word seismos for the winds. That's where we get seismic from, which we use for earthquakes, right? These are like earthquake-like winds, whatever that is. Crazy winds, howling winds, full-on hurricane mode. This is no tropical storm. Winds were howling. Waves were rolling. The boat was breaking. The disciples were despairing, and Jesus was sleeping. Imagine their state. What is going on? They cry out to him, Jesus, save us! They're about to die. And Jesus replies, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Um, I'm sorry, but I identify with the disciples here. How can you not be afraid of a storm that's seismic like that? Right? But Jesus gets up with a word he rebukes, these seismic winds, and there arises a great calm. A kind of calm in the middle of the ocean, in the deadness of a windless night. Dead silence. Deafening silence, where you can only hear your heartbeat. And they continue to the other side of the lake. It's like the disciples probably are afraid to talk at this point. You know, just on edge. And they finally recover when they encounter two demon-possessed men who come out of the tombs, great place to live, and they come over and they shout across the waters to Jesus. And we hear them say, What have you to do with us, O Son of Man? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They're saying something like this. Leave us alone. You said you'd wait to destroy us. Where's the fierceness of these men? We, we hear in this account that our text says they were so fierce and so violent and so powerful, nobody took that road anymore. No matter how far you had to go out of your way, you didn't mess with these guys because no one came back when you went that way. Where is their challenge to Jesus? You can't cast us out. You don't have the power to. Where is the fierceness of these men? All they can say is leave us alone. All they can do is plead for a delay of his conquering of them. And he effortlessly casts them out with go. And they go to the pigs. The pigs go in the water. And the whole town is like, what just happened? Notice we don't hear the disciples angry because Jesus rebuked them for their little faith. Even though the storm was crazy. Instead, we hear them ask, what sort of man is this? Who is this? That even the winds and sea obey him. Notice we don't hear the demons challenging Jesus' ability to cast them out. We just hear for them pleading for a delay. Why? Because Jesus is supremely different than you or I. Anyone who has existed isn't like Jesus. The disciples' questions had disappeared because they saw who Jesus was. Their fear was replaced with wonder at his nature. The demons' power, their might, vanished because of the surpassing power of Jesus Christ. 
And when you and I get a look of who Jesus is, our questions go away too. Gone are our questions of, do you really have the right to call me to follow you? And suddenly we cast ourselves upon him. We marvel. We say, who are you, God? You're marvelous. We get in line with the demons and we say, your will, Lord, be done. With a touch, he heals the leper. With a word, he heals the servant. With a word, he quiets the most vicious storm. And with a word, he smashes the stronghold of Satan. Because Jesus isn't like anybody else. His power, limitless. Incurable diseases, healed upon his touch. Racial and ethnic barriers, destroyed in his love. Natural disasters, serenity. Defiant demons, cowering complainers, like five-year-old children. This demon, both these demons, they knew the true identity of Jesus. They call him the Son of Man. And Jesus used that title for himself too, right, earlier? That's a title, specific title, taken from Daniel chapter 7. And it refers to the Messiah, the one who would be sent to deliver Israel. This is what it says in Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel has a vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This messianic person encounters God and is sent by God to create a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Jesus was the one who had been face to face with the ancient of days. Jesus was the one sent with all the power and all the glory and all the dominion of heaven behind him. And Jesus' dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Because Jesus is gloriously powerful, eternally powerful, incorruptibly powerful, supremely powerful as the Messiah. And in verse 17, Matthew says again, this Jesus is the Messiah. He connects all the healings that Jesus just completed to the promises in Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus came as the long and promised Messiah of the Old Testament to take away the afflictions and the illnesses of his people. And the leper and the centurion believed this and they were healed. But the leper wrongly doubted whether God wanted to heal him because Jesus was sent from the Ancient of Days for the very purpose of taking away his wounds and his illnesses. But here's the thing. That would be enough. We could stop here. But Jesus isn't just revealed to be the Messiah in this, this text. Jesus is re revealed to be God. You know what? When the disciples just in astonishment proclaim, what sort of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him? 
They were recognizing that he was doing something that only God can do. None but God set the foundations of the earth in place as creator, speaking into existence light and darkness, earth and sea, heavens and oceans, molding them together, creating the islands, separating the waters from the heavens, separating the earth from the land, showing masterful power over creation. None but God could send a mighty wind to part the Red Sea and deliver the people out. And Jesus was doing this. Jesus was revealing himself, giving his disciples a sneak peek. Let me just show you what I can do. Let me just show you who I am. Jesus is the divine Messiah. Who does he heal the lowly? What does he require? Everything. Absolute allegiance. Why does that make sense? He's your divine Messiah. He came. To enter into your afflictions. And he came as the eternal son of God. I'd like to invite the band back up. Even as we continue. So I wonder. Even as we consider that Jesus demands that we leave everything behind. As we follow our divine Messiah. Do you identify with the people that Jesus healed? Do you identify with the leper? Maybe you feel that you're socially outcast. Maybe you feel that you're unpopular. You're unworthy. Maybe you feel that, like the leper, Jesus has got the power, but he doesn't want someone like you. Did he, do you doubt that Jesus wants you? Is that you? As I was preparing this, I just believe, I just believe the Lord put a picture in my heart that, that you're like, the, if that's you, you're standing at the edge of the crowd. And the leper pushed through. And Jesus is calling you, friend, to push through despite what anyone might think, to come, to fall at his feet, no matter what others might say, and to find in him your all in all. You see, none of us can do anything with your sin. I can't help you. No self-help book can help you. No wise sage of this world can help you. But there is one who can Jesus Christ. Notice what happened when he touched the leper. He didn't get unclean. Out of his hand flowed cleanliness. Out of his hand flowed salvation. And you know what? Jesus didn't just come to heal our sicknesses and our illnesses. Jesus came to deal with our greatest sickness, sin. All of us. The moment we have sinned, one time, fall short of the standard that God requires. And we're like someone that has a terminal illness. It's only a matter of days before we meet our end. And you know this. This is you. If you identify with this leper, you know this. But Jesus 
went all the way to the cross. He didn't just heal people temporarily, only for them to die later. He went all the way to the cross, and when he died, here's why he did it. He did it to take your sins away. So that if you fall on your knees and you cry out to him, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. He will take every sin you have committed or ever will on his own head and die in your place the death that you deserve. All you have to do is cry out to him. All you have to do is say, I need you, Jesus. In a little bit, when we sing, I want you to do that if that's you. But there's some of the rest of us here who haven't counted the cost. You've been living a Christianity life, a convenient Christianity. You call yourself a believer, but you're only a believer when it's convenient. You preach when you're preaching to the choir. You are radical for God when other people have their hands raised. But when you're not with believers, and you're facing persecution, when you're online, when you're with your old friends, you're a different person. And Jesus is calling you to follow him. Friend, if you haven't given yourself fully to Jesus, you're not a disciple. 100% or nothing. No turning back. No giving up. No halfway. And when you follow, despite the cost, despite the loss that you might receive in this world, this is the beauty of this. You come under the protection of the divine Messiah. The stormy seas of your life are governed by the demons that might attack you are silenced by him. When we sell out and leave nothing behind and follow Jesus, we receive his power. You don't have to lie awake at night fighting your demons. Jesus is with you. You don't have to fear the wounds, sickness, sin, or even death because an all-powerful, all-compassionate Savior descended into death itself to deliver you from damnation. And there's some of you here that have been experiencing the cost. Your life is awful right now. You've been experiencing persecution. Your family has distanced themselves from you. And even as you sing, I want to encourage you to experience the blessing of God. He sees every trial that you face. He's called you to this, and he wouldn't call it to you, call you to it, unless he was going to give you the grace to persevere. In fact, you should feel assured of your salvation. If you are experiencing opposition, your life is falling apart, but you're still holding on to Jesus, only he could do that in you. Take courage. Your Savior, divine Messiah, is with you. Let me pray. Father, we pray you'd help us to live for Jesus. Help us to count the cost. Help us to see your power. Help us to see who you are. Help us not leave any area of 
our life undedicated to you. Would you stand?